Well, I splurged this past Monday. You want to know what I did? Yes. Well, my old PC died. So I went down to King Street, and I went into the Apple Store, and I bought this. This is my brand new Mac Airbook. I love it. Did I mention that? I love it. But I did not make the decision to switch to Mac lightly because I knew that there were compatibility issues between Macs and PCs. They have different operating systems. One of them has Windows 7. The other has OS 10. Did I mention I love it? And so I had reservations about this. Would I be able to print from my Mac to the church copier? Would I be able to open the bulletin that Grace sends me each week in the publisher format and print that? Would I be able to use my favorite Bible software that I have opened almost every day for the last 12 years on my Mac? Well, I found out that I can use that software. But installing it on this computer is not going to be an uncomplicated process. It's always difficult to fix compatibility issues between two different operating systems. What is your operating system? You know, all of us have one. We have an operating system. We have a way that we look at this world. We have a way in which we live in this world. And what is yours? And how compatible is it with the Word of God? Are you making the comparison between the truth of the Word of God and your operating system? Where have you noticed incompatibility? And what do you do when you find incompatibility between the way you operate and the truth of the Word of God? See, the truth of the Word of God and the Gospel, it's always going after our operating systems always exposing the viruses that we find there until we realize that our operating system cannot be fixed. The truth of the Word of God, the Gospel, always going after our operating system until we realize finally that it cannot be fixed and that it must be replaced. Replaced by the truth of the Word of God. And then once that replacement has been made in your life and my life, You and I might need to start asking a lot of questions and doing even more listening so that we know what operating systems people are using in the world around us so that you and I can take the truth of the Word of God and the Gospel and go after those operating systems so that they too may embrace the Gospel of Christ. And so it's important for us this morning, all of us, is to just lay our operating system out there And let it be judged by the truth of the Word of God. And where there are incompatibilities, we need to pray that the Lord would expose those to us so that we would be willing to make that replacement. Well, that's our hope for this morning. So let's pray and ask the Lord to accomplish His will in us and through us this morning. Father, we do thank You again for an opportunity to come to Your Word. We thank You that Your Word is truth. We thank You for the presence of Your Spirit here with us. We thank you for the power of your spirit. And we pray now that you, O Spirit of God, would take the truth uh, of your word and apply it to our hearts. Uh, Drive it deep within us, Lord, and we do ask that where there are incompatibilities in the way we view our world and the way we live our lives, uh, 
May we change those in light of the truth of the Word of God. So we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, or if not, there's one in the pew, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy. We're working our way through this book, and we have come to Deuteronomy chapter 9. And as we come to this passage, we see the first operating system, and it's in verses 1 through 3. So look in verses 1 through 3 as I read those for us now. Hear, O Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan, to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them and have heard it said, Who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. And you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. So what is the operating system that's working here that's got to be addressed? Clearly, it's the sensible culturally conditioned and most commonly held view that the weaker cannot defeat the stronger. The worldview that says you should not go up against unbeatable odds. And then those odds are listed here for us. Then other nations are greater and stronger. They have large cities with walls up to the sky, not literally, of course, just a bit of holy hyperbole. To make the point, these are well-defended, well-fortified cities. The people are strong and tall. They're Anakites, for goodness sake, exclamation point. And everybody knows about Anakites. If you watch CNN or Fox News, you know these people are giants. And so any reasonable operating system would say, don't go up against people like this. You might bow before them. You might submit to them. You may even uh, approach them uh, to, to make some kind of, uh, of a treaty with you uh, so that they'll protect you, but, but you would never come up against them to defeat them. And so clearly there is a conflict, an incompatibility between operating system, a conflict between the way the Israelites, and by the way, every culture around them operates, and the way God operates. And that's why verse 3 begins with the word, but... Because God is now going to go after their operating system. Because this system cannot continue to operate, it's got to be replaced. So look in verse 3. God says, but be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you. Like a devouring fire, he will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. See, this is the new operating system that must replace the old virus infected one. Their God... Our God is a God of power. Our God is a God of might. Our God goes ahead of us. Our God is a God of justice. This is who God is. And this truth is the truth that must change how you view the world and how you operate in it. Since your God is a God of might. Since your God is a God of power, since your God goes ahead of you, since your God is a God of justice, how should you live your life? What difference should that truth make in the way you live? How many times is your life, in your life, are the odds going to be against you? How many times in your life 
Are you not going to be able to see a way out or around or through a particular problem or situation? How many times in your life is what you have in your hand not going to be enough? How many times in your life is your strength and your ability not going to be enough to get the job done? If your life is even remotely like mine, the answer to those questions, many times, many times. And if you and I are not working from an operating system, from a worldview that says, my God is a God of power. My God is a God of might. My God goes ahead of me. Where are you going to end up? If our church is not operating with this system in place, where are we going to end up? God's purpose and God's plan was to bless his people with the gift of the promised land. And God's power and God's might will always accomplish his purpose. Do you believe that? God's power and God's might will always accomplish his purpose. That's no less true for your life than it was for the life of the ancient Israelites. The purpose God has for you, he will accomplish. But he did not call his people here to to passivity. He called them to action as well. He said that he would go ahead of them. He said that he would subdue them. But now look at the end of verse 3. But he says, there you must drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised. The promise of the Lord is that they will be able to do what he has called them to do. If God commands you, God will provide for you. If God commands you, God will provide for you. How often are you operating from that system? See, the command of God always carries the provision of God. The two are never separate. The two never go out alone. They are always together. The command of God and the provision of God always together. Because God is good and gracious. And he would not ask any of us to do anything that he did not also make provision for us to do. The Egyptians did that. That's how they operated. They said to the Israelite, make bricks, make bricks, make bricks. But they would not give them any straw with which to make those bricks. That's not how God operates. God is a God of might. God is a God of power. God went and will always go ahead of his people, leading those who will follow him to the place where he wants them to be. And if you are not operating with that system in place this morning, then your system needs to be replaced. Secondly, another worldview is seen here. This one in verses 4 through 6. Let's look at those verses together. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it's on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, The Lord your your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your father, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. What's the operating system that's in place here? Well, clearly, these people 
just like the cultures around them, are operating from the belief that you get what you deserve and that you deserve what you get. So if the people are going to be blessed with this beautiful and bountiful land, then there is some reason that they deserve to be blessed with this beautiful and bountiful land. Their operating system tells them that their righteousness, their goodness, their right way of thinking, their right way of living, that is what has obligated God to give them this wonderful gift. In fact, it isn't a far jump for these people to believe that their goodness and their righteousness is the very reason that God chose them above all other nations to bless them in the first place. See, pride won't allow us to think anything other than that. We can't have no credit. We've got to claim a little bit of the spotlight, even if it's a place over in the shadows. But God says here, no, no, you can't have it. You can't claim it, not even a little bit of it. Look in verse 5. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness or the integrity of your heart And again in verse 6, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. This operating system is a tough one, a tough one to replace. And that may be the reason that God repeats himself here two times. And here's what's sobering. You know, it's clear from Scripture what righteousness is. These people stand on the edge of the promised land. They're, they're ready to go in and possess it. And what they have with them are stories. The stories that Moses will write down, the stories that will become scripture, Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And even here in verse 6, Moses reminds them of their father, Abraham. And they know the stories of Abraham. And if these people don't know anything else about Abraham, they know this one thing, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. They knew that. Everyone knew that. Romans 4.3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Romans 4.20. Abraham did not waver through unbelief, Regarding the promise of God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That's why it was credited to him as righteousness. Galatians 3, 6. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. James 2, 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Everyone knew. Everyone knew. Why Abraham was righteous? Hundreds of centuries later, they still knew why Abraham was called righteous. Because through faith, Abraham believed in the promises of God. Abraham was not a righteous man in and of himself or his own character. Other stories in scripture tell that tale about Abraham. Twice, he prostituted his own wife out to save his skin. There's every indication in Scripture that these weren't the only two instances that Abraham did such a thing. And and we're not shocked by that story because we've heard it so many times. And it happened so long ago. And it was in such a different culture than the one in which we live. But consider what you would think of my character. If you read in the newspaper 
You know, local pastor gets desperate for money and sells daughters to sex ring. What would you think of my character then? Not righteous. And what would you think I deserve? What you would think I would deserve would be to put un- be put under the jail. And so Abraham was not chosen by God because he was good at heart or because he deserved God's blessing. Abraham did not keep God's blessing because he was such a good and deserving man. He wasn't. But in spite of his character, God chose him and blessed him. And in spite of all Abraham's flaws and all Abraham's sins, still he had a heart that trusted and believed in God. And that's why Abraham was called righteous. But this kind of righteousness wasn't compatible with the operating system that God's people had in place. You know why? Because it deprived them of any glory for themselves. And so they ignored this operating system. Why? Well, the same principle that we saw last week is always at work. Whatever God ordains, Satan opposes. Whatever God ordains, Satan opposes. And what God ordains is that he will bless his people freely by his grace. That's what God ordains. That he will bless his people freely by his grace. It's a gift. A free gift. And the gift reflects the character of a God that is good and gracious and glorious. That he would freely give not only to the undeserving, but to the ill-deserving. In other words, you and I are not just pitiful, well, bless their hearts. They don't know any better. Recipients of God's grace, it's worse than that. We're bad, bad people, enemies, shaking our fist at God kind of recipients of God's grace. But this kind of gift is so foreign to anything that we have ever seen or anything that we've ever experienced that we can't really understand it. And so with the help of the enemy, we redefine it to make it something that makes more sense to us. Quid pro quo. Quid pro quo. That makes sense to us. That's the way we operate. Something for something. Quid pro quo. That's the way our enemy wants us to operate because that robs God of some of his glory. See, God's free grace, God's free grace makes him an incredibly glorious God. And the enemy is so envious of the glory of God. He cannot stand for the glory of God to shine, so he does whatever he can do to steal that glory or to dim the light of it. And if he can make you and me think that we have received what we have received because we deserve it from God, if he can convince us of that, then he sneers at God and he preens and he glories in the victory that he has won over the grace of God. And if he can get you and me and others to work really hard, really hard for God, because we believe that's what will incline God to give to us, as if he would not give to us or would give to us only grudgingly if we didn't work so hard, then the enemy sneers at God and he preens and he glories himself in the victory that he has won over the grace of God. And then you and I, we reduce God's character to to that level and we rob him of the glory of his grace. 
God wants to give these people the promised land because he delights in them and he delights to give them good gifts. How can they rob God by suggesting or implying that they deserve it? How can we? See, this is the core of the gospel. You and I, we don't deserve to be rescued by God. You and I, we don't deserve that the Lord should come to us. We don't deserve that He would allow us to feel the weight and the crush and the despair and the hopelessness of our sinful lives. We don't deserve that He would then open our eyes so we could see Christ and know that Christ and Christ alone is the only one who can help us with our sin problem. He's the only one who can give us life. We don't deserve that. We don't have anything to do with that. But we don't really want to believe that's true because self-help and self-righteousness, it's deeply ingrained in all of our operating systems. And it's not easily abandoned and replaced. But that's what Moses is attempting to do here throughout chapter 9. I'm not sure what modern psychology or modern psychiatry would do with a chapter like chapter 9 in Deuteronomy. It doesn't appear to fit an operating system that for so many decades now has placed a great deal of emphasis on self-esteem, building self-esteem, protecting self-esteem. If you consider chapter 9 a case study, wow, we might need to rethink that system as well. But look how Moses begins the chapter. He tells his people, the other people are bigger and better and stronger than you. And in case you didn't notice, we've been living in tents in the desert while these people have been living in nice, plush, lush cities in the promised land. That can't be good for self-esteem. He tells the people, you're not getting the good gift that you're about to get because you deserve it. In fact, you don't deserve it. That can't be good for self-esteem. And then Moses resorts to name-calling. <laughs> Look in verse 6. Not only are you not righteous, you are stubborn, stiff-necked people. That's not good for self-esteem. And they're not that way just sometimes, but they've always been that way. Look at verse 7. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Wow, that can't be good for self-esteem. And then look in verse 8, beginning there. Moses does what we call throwing something up in someone's face. Every bad thing these people ever did, Moses reminds them of it here. Remember Horeb? Mount Sinai, while I was up on the mountain fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, while I was up there receiving uh, the, the covenant from the Lord, while, while, while the finger of God was writing the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone, God came to me and said this, look in verse 12. The Lord told me, go down from here at once because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made idol an idol for themselves. And so I went down while the mountain was ablaze with fire. Verse 16, and when I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. And so I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes. That's what you did. Now look at verse 22. You also made the Lord angry 
at Tabera, at Massah, and at Kibroth Hatahava. Each place, another story of sin and rebellion against the Lord. Look in verse 23. And when the Lord sent you out from Kadesh Barnea, he said, go up and take possession of the land I've given you. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not trust him or obey him. You have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you. Wow. So much for building self-esteem. You can imagine being one of the Israelites gathered there on the plains of Moab, thinking, oh no, not these stories again. How many times do we have to hear these stories about how bad we are? We get it. We get it. Do you get it? Really? Because as long as you're operating from the system that robs God of the glory, of his glorious grace in giving us all things, then you don't get it. And so Moses here is breaking the people down, tearing them down, taking away their operating system so that it can be replaced and they can be rebuilt according to the truth of God. Because as long as anyone's operating from a worldview, if you're operating from a worldview that promotes self, self-sufficiency, self-satisfaction, esteeming self, then you're operating from a system that is antithetical to the gospel. And that's a bad thing. Because if you do not embrace the gospel of Christ, you will die. Please turn to the New Testament to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. See, in other words, they want God on their own terms. They're zealous for God as long as God fits into their operating system. And if God strays from their operating system, then they're not really interested in God. And we see that as we keep reading Romans 10 verse 3. Since they did not know the righteousness of God, they sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. So you see, they wanted to keep their own operating system in place. They wanted righteousness defined as they defined it. But look what God says in verse 4. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Skip down to verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that good news? That's the righteousness of God. 
It's by grace through faith in Christ. If you and I could have righteousness any other way, if there were a way that we could work hard enough, if there were a way that we could be good enough, if there were a way that we could clean ourselves up well enough to deserve it, then our service, this service right now, could end about 20 minutes earlier than it's going to end because we could skip the Lord's Supper. Because you know why? We wouldn't even know what Lord's Supper was. There wouldn't even be a Lord's Supper. Jesus would have never given his body. Jesus would have never shed his blood to institute the Lord's Supper. But guess what? Jesus did institute it because we need it. Because we can't be righteous on our own. We cannot get to God on our own. We can't do enough. We can't perform well enough to ever deserve to be in his presence. And since you and I cannot get to him, what did he do? He came to us in the person of Jesus the Christ. And Jesus was the perfectly righteous person that you and I never can be. Jesus was the perfectly righteous person that you and I can never be. And since Jesus is so full of compassion and love and pity for us and our complete inability to be righteous, our complete inability to deserve anything from God, out of his love and free grace, he says this to us. Here, here, you take my righteousness. Go ahead, take it. I'm giving it to you. I have plenty. You can have it for free by faith. My righteousness is all you need to forgive your sins and to get into heaven. You and I, we completely nullify that offer of Jesus when we believe that he comes to us, when we believe that he makes that offer to us for any other reason than this reason, that he is full of love and full of mercy and full of compassion and full of grace. So if your operating system is wrong on this point, you miss the gospel. And if you miss the gospel, your life misses out on being the abundant thing that the gospel makes it. Either because you won't believe the gospel, you prefer to keep operating under the world's system, or you believe the gospel, but you believe it wrongly that you have something to do with it, and then you become a miserable legalist, spending your life trying to please God and obligate him to bless you. And if you miss the gospel, you will die. So if you need to replace your operating system, you better do it. And if you and I don't ask questions of others, and if you and I aren't listening to the answers that they give us, if we're not finding out what operating system that they're using so that we can take the gospel and the truth of the word of God and apply it to their lives, then they too will die. And so what we need to do this morning is ask the Spirit of God to help us evaluate our operating system. How we look at the world. How we live in the world. And replace everything that's not compatible with the truth of the gospel and the word of God. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we want to come before you again in just a few moments of silence, praying that your Spirit would examine us, examine us before we come to your table, examine us to know truly what our operating system is, Lord. Are we operating in our lives by the truth of the gospel, by the truth of your word? Are there inconsistencies and incompatibilities in our life, Lord, in the things that we think and the things that we do that are completely out of line with your truth? So in the next few moments of silence, Lord, reveal those things to us. By the power of your Spirit, Lord, you replace that operating system so that we are walking and living in your truth. Now, Spirit of God, we once again give you thanks for your power that makes new creations out of each of us. And we thank you for your work in our hearts and our lives. And we pray now that you would protect us from this danger, to know the truth, but to reject it. For over and over in Scripture, we see that people know your way. They know how you define righteousness, but Lord, they reject it for their own definition. And so we pray that that would not be the case in us or among us today. Lord, I pray that unlike the ancient Israelites, that we would submit ourselves to your truth, to the work of the gospel in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.